So again, if you have your Bibles, uh, we'll be in James chapter 3. We'll look at verses uh, 13 through 18 uh, this morning. So if you have not been a part of what's been going over the last few months, we've been walking through James through a series called Uncivilized, which has challenged us to take a step back and reconsider kind of our version of faith or our version of Christianity and what it looks like. And James, throughout his book, challenges us to look at something that maybe we've forgotten about or look at things differently. And so this morning, we're going to look at these few verses where James talks about this thing called wisdom, which is something all of us know that we need in our life. But he talks about this comparison between wisdom that God interjects into our life and then wisdom that comes from our own human instinct or even from the, from the enemy and compares the two and how we can make sure that we're, we're allowing the right wisdom to influence our lives. And so to kind of start with, I want you just the, the overall framework of what, what wisdom is, is really wisdom is the framework or the lens that we allow or we use to inform our decisions in life. So when we're making a decision, whether it's a quick decision on a daily basis or it's a long decision that's going to maybe change the course of our life, there's, there's things that we allow to frame that or inform those decisions. And I think the best way that they come about is in, in all of us, there is always a whisper in our hearts and our minds prior to making a decision that either is from God or is it from our own instinct, our own humanity, and again, sometimes from, even from the devil, sometimes in the way he influences our decisions. But as we think about that, you and I have to ask the question this morning as we walk through James, what voices are we allowing to whisper as the framework or the lens by which we make decisions in life? Because there's always a whisper. There's always a voice. There's always something that we're referencing that we will use as a way to make the decision we're going to make in the next moment. And James talks about that this morning. And so as we listen through this, I want you to kind of question the whisper. Not that we're hearing voices, okay, I'm not saying that, but that there's a whisper that comes prior to every major decision or minor decision in life that either informs the right decision or informs the wrong one. So James says in verse 13 of James 3, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, uh, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere." And verse 18, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So James starts out and he does this comparison. He does one side and he does the other. He starts off with the the wrong kind of motivation or the wrong kind of wisdom and what motivates that in our lives for us to listen to that voice and then make decisions according. So look at verse 14. The first thing that James mentions about what motivates the wrong kind of wisdom is this thing called bitter jealousy. He says, if you harbor bitter envy in you, if that's something that's a part of your life, if that's the voice or the whisper that you're listening to, then what, what you're listening to is this voice that says to you, it says to you, you deserve what they have. That's the voice. That's the voice of bitter jealousy and envy that looks at somebody and looks at their success or looks at their benefit in life and can't take joy in that. Why? Because it's not something that you possess. 
That means that everything that you see around you, you can't enjoy the, the blessings of other people in life because it's so much about you that the voice that you hear over and over and over again is, why can't it be me? Why isn't that mine? Why them and not me? Anybody want to admit you've ever thought that in your life? I have. I know years ago when we were in Ventura, I began uh, ministry in a way that wasn't probably the healthiest context in terms of walking into a church plant and thinking through how to pastor the church and understanding that I was misunderstood, misunderstood the concept of church. I really somehow in my mind was believing that I was in charge and I was the head of the church, yet Jesus was the one for centuries who's been the Lord of the church, but I positioned myself that way. And because of that, I always looked at the church as success or its failure was my personal success or my personal failure. And when you live in that kind of context, what happens is everything you see around you always comes through this lens of selfishness. And so what I was doing as a pastor in Ventura is that I could not take joy in the success of any other church in our city. I'm just being very transparent. So if a church was really rapidly growing or they were doing some dynamic ministry that was really impacting our city, I could not take joy in that. I'll tell you what my prayer life consisted of at that moment. It was, God, why not me? Why not our church? I'm just as righteous and spiritual and gifted and all these things, all these other pastors. Why aren't you doing it here? Why, had you, why them, not me? And, I, and isn't that ridiculous? You think, really? That, that's how evil you are? Yeah. And I know you guys never are that way. You never feel that way. My context is pastoring, and that's where I was until God reminded me of some very important things. First of all, Jesus is the Lord of the church, so I don't get to take either responsibility if I'm living righteously before the Lord for what happens to the church or credit for the success of the church. That's God's and God's alone. But he also reminded me that what's true about other churches and other pastors is that they're never my competitors. They're always partners. We're all on the same team. So when success is happening somewhere in a church, that's great for the kingdom. So we applaud that. We don't go, oh God, why not here? Because what motivates that? Bitter jealousy. I have to have it. It has to come all through me as opposed to look at what God's doing. The disciples do that. Anytime someone's casting out demons, they're like, hey Jesus, what's going on with these guys over here? Are they really legit? And remember when Paul was in prison, he wrote in in the book of Philippians in chapter 1, People are like saying, Paul, are you freaked out because people are preaching the gospel to spite you? And he's all, doesn't matter to me. The gospel's being preached. Jesus is being glorified. That's the, that's the perspective we have to have. But some of us, we all struggle with this bitter jealousy, which informs our decisions. Second thing, in verse 14, James also says the wrong kind of wisdom is motivated by selfish ambition. He says, if you harbor not only bitter envy, but you harbor selfish ambition— And selfish ambition whispers into our hearts and our minds, get all you can at all costs, regardless of what it costs other people around you. Get everything you can, because ultimately that's the whole point, is that life is about you, and life is about what makes you happy, and life is what you want it to be, and life is about your success. That becomes the driving force. And so what happens is that we start to live this life when we become the centerpiece, is that when something comes our way, when an opportunity comes that we want to go after, we go after it in such a way that we lose sight of everyone else around us. We can't see them. Because we're driven by this selfish ambition that says it's really only about me. Anybody been to a baseball game or watched a professional baseball game on TV? When a, when a ball is hit into the stands, this amazing thing occurs. Everybody loses sight of everyone else around them, don't they? It's you and the baseball. 
And it doesn't matter who you're sitting next to. It doesn't matter what gender they are. It doesn't matter what age they are. It doesn't matter who they are. All you can see is the baseball. Anybody ever experienced that or seen that? It happens all the time. And you can see, they show it on, on TV all the time. You can go check it out on YouTube. But there's, there's a ball gets hit to the stands, and you can be having a wonderful conversation with your neighbor on one side, and as soon as that ball starts coming for, for you, you're enemies. It's every person for themselves to go after the ball. That's why they've show, showed videos of young children getting harmed by their parents as they dive for a baseball, right? Or a guy elbowing a woman in the face as he goes for a ball, and then everyone on the big screen booing him, and he still won't let go of the ball because he caught it. What happened in that moment? He got so tunnel visioned on the ball that he forgot about everything else around him. See, that's selfish ambition that's inside of us. And instead of thinking about, you know, there are people around me and there's, you know, there's a few thousand people that would love to get their hand on a baseball that's worth like, what, four bucks? And we're willing to annihilate our neighbor to get $4 baseball just because we got a ball. And it's so funny, if you've been at a baseball game, somebody like comes up with the ball and they hold it up like it's a lifetime achievement award or something, right? And you're like, so you got a $4 ball, right? Big deal. Now, unless somebody important hit it, and it was like their, you know, 700 home run or something. But that's the way that we function in life. Something comes our way, and we lose sight of our family. We lose sight of our friends. We lose sight of everybody. And at all costs, we will go after what we think is supposed to be ours. There's always a whisper that comes before that kind of decision. And it's a whisper that's telling you that this is yours, and you should get all that you can all the time with, by all means, because it's ultimately about you. That's obviously, we'll talk in a little bit, that's not what God has for us. That's not what his motivation is. The third uh, motivation of uh, what motivates the wrong kind of wisdom is our cultural goals. So James says in verse 15, Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly. It's, it's from us. It's not from God. It's, it's earthly. It's, it's the context that we live in. That's the motivating, kind of the the predominant mindset that we have in our culture is what drives the decisions that we make. It's what informs our decisions. It's the lens that we look through in our culture of what we would say is successful or what happiness looks like. And when we have that, what begins to happen is we listen to the voice that says, success will make you happy. Or whatever it is, what our definition of success is. If you reach this status, if you reach this point, then you will be happy and all your problems will disappear and all your dreams will come true. And so we strive for that. Anybody watch HDTV? Anybody watch like House Hunters or Flip or Flop or, you know, renovation shows? You watch those shows. It's amazing to watch those shows because they're built on this premise. What I have is not good enough to make me happy, so I need more. I love watching, Kim and I watch them. I think it's, it's fascinating to watch somebody be able to transform a house and make it look completely different. But if you've ever watched, like, like House Hunters is a perfect example. So they're following people around as they look at different properties. And they do, it local, or they do it nationally in the U.S. and then they do it internationally. But the story always seems to follow the same pattern. And that is, you know, we're, we're living in 2,500 square feet and it's really cramped. You know, they have the first picture of a family of four. It's like, you know, vying for room in the kitchen and elbowing each other because it's so unbearable, right, to live in such a small house. So we have to have like four or 5,000 square feet and six bathrooms and five bedrooms because no one should ever wait to go to the bathroom. And then we'll be happy. And you watch those shows and they're going through these like amazing houses that I would die to live in. And they're looking at it and saying, oh, it's just too small. It won't work for me. And that's based on this, this idea that bigger is better. If I have more and I'm successful, then I'll be happy. Why is it that 
statistically speaking, we are the most depressed, most dissatisfied culture on the face of the earth. Why is that? Because we've bought into the idea that what? Success will make me happy. More is better. Which is built on this little voice that keeps whispering into us. Just go after it. Just go after it. You know, they should do like a follow-up on, on house hunters like two years later when they're still in debt and the house is not big enough still and they need to go, right? Isn't that the way it goes? You never see that. You never see the kind of follow-up. So um, there is a child that is in pain right now that needs help or something. So I don't know if somebody needs to go. Sorry, Denise. I didn't know that was yours. So, but anyway... Either that, or maybe we just need to close the door and we just need to let him cry. I don't know which way we want to go on that. So anyway, pray for Denise as she goes. <clears throat> the fourth thing that, that James mentions in the motivation of what's by our, the wrong wisdom is that James says in, in the next part of verse 15, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is unspiritual, which means it's our human instinct. It's not the spiritual wisdom that comes from God. It's the human instinct within us that drives what we want to do in life. It's the thing inside of us that says, this is the compass by which you gauge where your life is supposed to go. One of the most dangerous phrases that we live by in our culture and we buy into, and it seems so innocent and so pure and so right, is this phrase. Just follow your heart. Anybody been told that? Anybody tell your kids that? Just follow your heart. And if you follow your heart, everything will turn out okay. Just be true to yourself. Make sure that you're, you're following what your heart desires, and if you do that, then everything will be wonderful. If that's true, then why isn't our world so wonderful? Because if we follow our heart before we come to know Jesus, or we haven't been transformed by His Spirit who lives inside of us, then what we're following is a corrupt heart that will lead us down a path that we don't want to go. How many people throughout the centuries have said, I just followed my heart? And where did it lead them? Hitler followed his heart. Didn't turn, didn't turn out too well for a lot of people. He was just being true to himself. It's just what he wanted to do. He's following his heart, what he thought would make him happy, right? How many people have we thought through? Just, just follow your heart. No, that's the opposite. Unless you've come to know Jesus in such a way that your soul is transformed and your heart is renewed, then you can trust the heart that God has given you. But how many, in our, how many times in our life do we we end up going down the wrong road. We end up not experiencing what we thought we experienced. Why? Because in our minds, we're listening to the voice that says, just do what you want to do. Just follow your heart. And if you follow your heart and you're true to yourself, then you'll be happy. Then you'll have wisdom. But we can't trust our own heart until it's transformed by Jesus because then in, in what we're reality, who we're trusting is not ourselves any longer. We're trusting Jesus. We're trusting his motivation within us. And then there's a fifth a fifth thing, and that is that the wrong kind of wisdom is motivated by the devil himself. Because James says, such wisdom doesn't come down from heaven, but it is demonic, which it comes from the evil one. Does that mean that somehow there's a demon behind every bush and that the devil's speaking into your mind every day? No, no. But there is some things that I think that inform the way we make decisions in life that are inspired by the devil himself. And I think it comes in the form of, of, of a question that was asked thousands of years ago. It was asked in the Garden of Eden. It was asked to Eve. When the serpent came, obviously the enemy was using the form of a serpent to come and speak to Eve, and we know the story. There was only one wrong decision that Adam and Eve could make. One tree that they were not supposed to touch. They could touch everything else. They could do everything else. 
And so when the enemy comes along and tempts Eve, he says this phrase to her. He says, did God really say? There is so much implied in that statement. What he was saying to Eve is he's saying this. He was influencing her decision. He was whispering in her ear and he was saying, God's holding out on you. You can't trust him because what he's trying to hold out on you is that you could be just like him. You could be a God just like him and he doesn't want you to know that. So he's holding out. So did God really say that? Did he really mean that? And then what happens is in the garden, you know that 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 obviously caused Eve to go into a state of confusion. Now she starts thinking, what did God really say? And she will repeat it back, but then she begins to question what she knew was true. She begins to question the nature and the heart of God. She begins to question God's great intentions for Adam and Eve and all humanity. And then she makes a decision that obviously is fatal for all of us. See, the danger, questions are not bad, but the form of the questions and the motivation of the questions can be bad. That if we are thinking through questions in our mind that begin to question the nature of God to the point where we're willing to do the opposite of what we know is true of his nature, then we've gone down the road the enemy wants us to go down. We've entertained in our minds that that, that can't really be true. Even though God says this is what's true about my life, this is what the scriptures say, this is what I know is to be true, the enemy comes along and we start to believe the lie that somehow God is not truthful, that God is not honest, that God isn't really seeking the best for us. And then when we go down that road, it always leads us down to a place that we never thought we would end up. Eve never thought she would be where she was. Adam and Eve never thought it would happen. But she began to think about what the serpent was asking her, and it caused her to ask deeper questions. There are healthy questions. The questions that seek after God, the questions that want to know is God real, that want to experience the reality of who Jesus is, those questions, those kind of questions always do lead to Jesus. But the questions that the enemy gives us are the questions that lead us away. Now, those five things, if those are the things that inform our decisions, if that's the wisdom that we allow to penetrate our minds, then James tells us in verse 16 what that produces in our life. He says this, he says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. What, is, what does it produce? It produces disorder and every evil practice. That's the wisdom. That's the road it leads us on. That's where we end up. That's very true for Eve in the garden. What happens when the enemy asks her the question, did God really say? It puts her in a state of confusion. Disorder comes where there was order. And now she goes down a road that she never thought she would go down. And it ends up with what? Every evil practice. Don't you think what Eve made that decision and Adam obviously was complicit with it too. And we all make through our lifetime to reject what the truth of what God says and choose to do it our own way and be our own God. It leads to what? Every evil practice. The culture we live in is the culture that says, I reject God. I choose to be my own God. Therefore, I get to live in this context. Haven't we made a wonderful world of it? We haven't. This is what every evil practice looks like. It looks like our culture that we live in. It looks like our own lives. What happens is when we, when we walk through that, there's this, this confusion that comes over us so that things that would be so clear before are now confusing to us. And then God comes along, and we'll, we'll transition a moment to what, when James talks about the wisdom that should inform the decisions in our life. But we have those moments where the light comes on, and it comes with a great sense of almost like regret. Like, oh, now I can see beyond the confusion around me. 
There's a great scene I'm not going to play at the end of Schindler's List. If you haven't seen Schindler's List, you know this true story of Oscar Schindler, who has a actually pretty savvy businessman, purchased Jews out of concentration camps to bring him into, them into his factories to not only make money, but to save them out of concentration camps. And at the, at the end of the movie, there's a scene, Liam Neeson was the actor, just did an amazing job, where he's saying goodbye to these three or 400 Jews that he saved out of these camps. And when he sees all of them there, he's still, he's extremely wealthy man. He's looking around at all these faces of all the people he saved. And then it hits him. You think he would think, wow, I really did a great job. I just, I mean, I should really pat myself on the back. Look how many lives I've saved. But he doesn't. His response is actually the opposite. As he looks around and he sees the faces, it starts to dawn on him of the faces that aren't there. And he starts to look at himself. And he looks at the car that he has. And he looks at the ring on his finger. And he looks at the clothes that he's wearing. And he starts to do the math. And he starts to figure out how many more lives he could have bought out of concentration camps if he wouldn't have been so selfish with his possessions. You think, Oscar Schindler, selfish? In his own mind, he was. Why? Because he realized with all that he had done, how much more he could have done with the extreme wealth that he had gained. Because even in the midst of that, what was it? It was this confusion to think that this is okay. And then the light came on for him. And he realized there could have been so many more. And I think that's the state that we find ourselves in. Most of us wouldn't say, well, I'm a horrible person and I never do anything good. There is that side of us that says, yeah, you know, there's some positive things. But then when the light goes on, we realize how much clarity we get about what God's really up to. And compared to what God wants us to do, maybe some of the things that we're involved in could be classified as an evil practice. Why? Because we're not seeing clearly. We're not seeing the, the clear picture of what God is saying, this is what your life should look like. This is what should inform the way you live your life. Now moving on, look at verse 17, because then James starts to walk through the right kind of wisdom and what it's motivated by in our lives. And the first thing he says in verse 17 is it's motivated by a pure heart. We talked about the heart earlier. He says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, and then he uses the word sincere as well. So when James talks about pure, one of the defaults that we have about purity is that it's the opposite of impurity, which is true. But purity has more to do with being true and transparent and consistent with what's on the inside, with what's on the outside. That's what purity is. Impurity has to do when we try to disconnect outside and inside. There's an inconsistency in us. It isn't pure anymore. And as a point of application in our lives, when James talks about a pure heart, he's not talking about a heart that is somehow blameless or doesn't have, I mean, it doesn't have any impurity in it because all of us know that we're sinners and it's only by God's grace through Jesus that we don't have that. But it's this ability to be honest and transparent with our life in such a way and sincere about who we are that we live without the mask. One of the greatest challenges of Christianity, that's why Jesus addressed it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, is hypocrisy. And the sad thing is, is that we as the church create an environment where hypocrisy is encouraged. Because the last thing that we want to do is let people know what's really going on in our lives. So see, impurity enters in when I know that I'm broken inside, but I put a perfect mask over the outside. And the wisdom that's infiltrating our minds is don't tell anyone. Don't let anyone in. Don't let anybody know what's really going on. Because if they find out who you really are and the fraud that you really are, they'll reject you. 
So what do we do? We put the mask on and we come to church or we go to community group and we serve with kids and we put the mask on. We don't want anybody to know what's really going inside of us, the brokenness inside of us. And James is saying, no, purity, sincerity is the wisdom that whispers into your ear, take off the mask. Be honest about your brokenness. Be transparent about your sin. Because it's at that moment that you begin, you, we go through this thing called confessing our sin, which means I say what God already knows is true of my life, and I'm not afraid that someone's going to reject me. Why? Because I know Jesus hasn't rejected me because his death on the cross, he's chose to accept me despite my sin and my brokenness. And the wisdom that comes and says, no, hide, stay secret. It's not that big of a deal. Don't engage in relationships. Stay distant. You're okay. Everyone's going to be fine. Don't, don't rock the boat. Don't make waves. Just keep on living the false reality that you lived in. That comes right from the enemy. So Jesus comes along. That's why how many times you read through the Gospels and in Jesus is reading people's mail. He is. I mean, they don't say anything. He responds back to the internal question they had in their brain. Why? Because Jesus just pulled the bass back. He got down to the core of what was going on in their life. And that's the life that he wants us to live. And if, if you're listening to a voice that tells you to stay covered, to keep the mask on, then you're not listening to the voice of God that says, it's time to come clean, it's time to come out, it's time to open up, it's time to remove the mask, it's time to be honest because it's only in the light that we can deal with your sin in a way that will bring health in your life. And that's what gets whispered in over and over and over again. Jesus says, remove the mask. What would it be like in our lives if we were no longer afraid? What if you walked into a room full of Christians and you weren't afraid to actually be honest about your brokenness? What would that be like? See, most of us live our Christian life totally afraid of people finding out the fraud that we are. And God already knows it. He still loves us. But we live in this constant fear. People are going to reject me if I'm honest. And that's wrong. You read through the Gospels. People who are honest about their sin, Jesus never rejected them. Now, the religious leaders did. And if people reject you because of your brokenness, shame on them. Not shame on you. Because they're the hypocrite. They're the religious leader. And Jesus says, no, take off the mask. Second thing in verse 17, the right kind of wisdom is motivated by a goal of right relationship. Because James says that wisdom that comes from heaven is also peace-loving, which means it is driven by this desire. The whisper in our hearts is to make sure that our relationships with each other are right that we're not living in offense towards people, that we're not hurt by other people that are, are, have unresolved hurt in our life, that we're extending forgiveness while we're asking for forgiveness, that we're living in right relationship all the time. The whisper that comes that says, seek reconciliation all the time. The enemy would tell you, no, no, you're fine, they're fine, don't, don't mess up anything, don't say anything, just remain quiet. See, there's a constant need for this relational assessment in our lives with each other, with people that we live with, with our families, with the people that we work with, the people that we are part of church with. There's a constant need for us to say, how am I doing in my relationships? Because right now, I can guarantee all of us can come up with one, two, three, or 20 people that we know right now that either we've offended or they've offended us, and we're not at peace with them. We are not peace-loving with them. And God's voice comes in and says, seek reconciliation, seek reconciliation. Why? Because that's what we've experienced with God. Jesus' death on the cross purchases reconciliation for us to be back in right relationship with God. And then he says, by the way, you've been reconciled. Now you have the ministry of reconciliation to be right with everybody else around you. 
I have a close friend who we've known each other for years, but over the last few years, we haven't been able to be in, be in contact as much because of schedule and where he lives and where I live. And every time we have like contact with each other or I, you know, hear of him or things, I, I felt some kind of like underlying something wasn't right. And I just couldn't put my finger on it. But I'm like, you know, I kept hearing these like thoughts like, ah, don't be so sensitive. It's probably okay. There's, it's no big deal. Don't say anything. You're just going to cause a fight. You're going to just cause tension. Just be quiet. Anybody want to admit you've listened to that voice before? But then every time I would just think about it and I would pray or I'd, I'd hear about him or I'd, I'd talk to him, it's just like, I, it's there. It just won't go away. So about three or four weeks ago, I had a chance to, to run into him and I said, hey, I pulled him aside. I said, I got to ask you. I said, are we okay? I said, I'm, I'm not sure what's going on, but I, I feel this distance and this kind of rub with you. And I don't know if it's just me or, or what's going on. I said, just something doesn't feel right and I can't get my finger on it. And he looked at me and he said, listen, he goes, it's not you. He said, I, he goes, I have to apologize. He goes, I've been going through a lot of stuff in my life and, and, and the distance you felt or whatever you felt, he said, it has nothing to do with anything that you've done. He said, there's things going on in my life that I know when we get the time, I want to sit down and talk to you about. But he goes, just be assured. He goes, no, you didn't do anything wrong. Now, I was relieved on one side that I didn't do anything wrong, but I, was, I felt the weight of my friend who'd been going through a struggle and it created a distance between us. But I was so glad I asked the question because it kind of it broke the tension that was between us that was kind of unspoken. And all it takes is a simple question. Hey, are we okay? Did I do something to offend you? Or if you know that you did do that, and that's why Jesus said when he said, you know, can you come to the altar to offer your gift and you know that there's a brother or sister that is offended by you, you're supposed to go to them. You're supposed to initiate reconciliation. That's the role that Jesus gives us. That's the wisdom that he speaks into our lives. Third point of right kind of wisdom and what it's motivated by. It's motivated by a consideration of others. Because James uses the word considerate. The wisdom that comes from heaven is considerate. It's the opposite of the foul ball mentality, which is I get the ball at all costs. I don't care if anybody else gets it. Consideration means I have the capacity that God whispers in my voice, look at people around you and appreciate what they're experiencing. Experience what they're experiencing so you have compassion for their context of what they're walking through. Don't stereotype and judge people because you think you understand what they're going through. But take a few steps in their shoes to understand how they live life, what they struggle with before you're so quick to judge them. See, the kind of wisdom that God brings always says, value the other person, consider what they're going through, understand what they're going through. Then you will respond not with judgment, you'll respond with compassion. How many times have we responded in judgment based on some flimsy information that we think is true about somebody else only to find out that it wasn't true or that we didn't understand what they were walking through? Way back when, when Kim and I were, when she got pregnant with Courtney, we went through our, our birthing classes at the hospital. So you're in a room with, I think there's probably about 15 or 20 couples. And, and so, you know, you're all on the journey to have a baby. And so there are different stages of pregnancy. And it was interesting, probably two-thirds to almost, sometimes you feel like the whole room. You know, the guys are there because why? Their wives drug them there, right? They're like, you're coming with me. You got to go to this class because you got to be a support when I go into labor. And like, all right, if you say so. Ladies, you know what I'm talking about? And so that's the room we're in. We're like, you can look around the room. It's like guys are totally disengaged, disinterested. The women are all leaning in like, please tell me everything about what's going to happen to me, you know? And so I watched this, and the first night, our instructor was, she was excellent. 
She, she knows she's been doing this for a long time, and so she wanted to break that down so the guys would engage as much as their wives were. So they had this little belly that you would wear that weighed about 40 pounds. You put the thing around your neck, and it has a belly like a baby, and it sits right there, like right on top of your bladder for a reason. And so every week, one of the guys, one of the dads, had to wear that the whole class. The class was two to three hours. Of course, it was hilarious the first time a guy puts it on. You're like, oh my gosh, you look like an idiot. You know, you're like laughing at him. And you know your time's coming, right? Because the week's coming when you have to do it. And then the funny thing is you started to watch what happens is we understood now the dynamic of what our wives were experiencing. And so each week when a guy had to do it, the funny thing is everybody in the room, without even saying a word, was looking at their watches to see how long it's going to take for him to run to the bathroom. Because he's sitting, he's got 40 pounds, like his wife does, you know, kind of laying there and just heavy. And so finally, it's like some guys could last an hour, some guys would go two hours. But like you get into the third hour, forget about it. He's bolting to the bathroom and everybody's laughing because they can appreciate it. But after we got through every guy having a chance to do that, all the guys were totally leaning in. Because they looked at their wife and they're like, now I understand why you complain about your back hurting. Why you have to go to the bathroom constantly. Well, you have to do all these things. And I was so grateful for that instructor because she understood that if she could get the guys to experience just a glimpse of what their wives were experiencing, they would have more compassion. They would lean in and learn more. But what ended up happening is obviously that they they had to experience it. They had to feel what their wives were feeling. Wisdom that brings consideration in their life is motivated by this fact. I need to understand what somebody else is experiencing. I need to know what they're walking through before I pass judgment on them. Sometimes we miss that. Fourth thing that James mentions is he mentions that the right kind of wisdom is motivated by a teachable spirit. This is important because I think sometimes we lose sight of that. James says, wisdom that comes from heaven is submissive. Now, the word submission has gotten such a bad rap in, our, in the culture, in our church. Submission is not being weak or being a doormat or letting people walk all over you. Submission is the ability to say, I don't know it all, therefore I choose to submit to a higher authority in my life that may know something a little bit more than I do or that has been given a position over me that I need to respect. It's a sense of humility that comes over us. And that's why when you read scripturally, submission is just not the role of the wife in marriage. It is a mutual point of submission between a husband and a wife. And so it's this ability to learn more than we think that we already know. Sometimes we think we're convinced that we know everything, and we don't. It's the difference between a sponge and a rock. When you pour water onto a sponge, what does it do? It soaks in the water. Why? It's teachable. It can receive. But when you pour that same water on a rock, what does it do? It bounces off. Why? Because a rock, you can't penetrate it. The same thing is true. If we are truly teachable, we are are wanting to learn something that maybe we don't understand, we will receive what comes to us. And that means the wisdom that God brings to us, even though we think we know better, we listen to it. And we receive it. And we take it in and we let it impact us from the inside out. The danger that we have is when we think we know it all, when we've come to the point where I don't need anybody else to input into my life, I have, I have enough wisdom, I have enough understanding, then we're no longer, we're unsubmitted to being teachable in our life. That's when we make really bad decisions. Because we've made an assumption that's not true. We don't know it all. We haven't learned it all. We haven't achieved it all. And there's more for us to learn. When I took driver's training when I was in high school, it was a little different than what my kids experienced. 
my kids got to go in a car with an instructor by themselves. If you were like me, and when I grew up, I was in the car with three other students and instructor. There are five of us in the car. So you're driving with three other complete novices that don't know what they're doing. And I remember going every week to driver's training. We would go into the classroom. We would go into the simulators, and the teachers would teach us. And I remember I was freaked out about driving. I was scared to death. So I would listen to everything that they had to say, every detail about what they were explaining to me about what it would be like to get behind the wheel of a car. And so as we're doing this, there's about 20 students, and we're going to separate up into a number of different cars. And I remember this one kid who you knew when he came in, he just like acted like he knew it all. So he would listen to anything. He was crashing the simulator all the time like it was no big deal. And all the things he was doing, you could tell he just was totally disengaged. And of all kids that had to get in my car, this guy was in my car. And the rest of us, the other three, this is, we're like, oh, why? Why this guy? So you get in the car. You know, the instructor's sitting in the, in the passenger seat. He's got a brake, you know, down on his foot. And then you start, you start driving. And we all got to take turns at each session. So you'd like drive for a while. You'd get out. Everybody rotate. And so when it was this kid's turn, it was like, it was like the worst experience of my life. Because you're like, I'm going to die. I am going to die. Because this kid didn't listen to anything. And soon, sure enough, one day, I mean, he was the first one to drive. So he drives out of the school parking lot. He's got one hand on the wheel. You know, the arm out. He's so cool, you know. And we're like, we're all like covering our eyes. And, and so I remember the exact intersection. It was Kester and Victory out in the valley. We're coming to that intersection. And one of the things they had instructed us over and over and over again. When you turn the wheel, when you turn it back, don't let the wheel slip back through your hand and straighten out on its own. Straighten the car out and be in control. So he's one hand Willie there, you know, on the, on the steering wheel. He turns, and then he decides to put both his hands on the wheel, but he just lets the steering wheel slip back through. And as he's doing that, he loses control of the car, and we start going into oncoming traffic. And I'm not kidding. The three of us in the back seat were all like, it's like we were in an airplane that was about to crash. We're like, duck, you know. And, and we could feel the car. The instructor reached over. He grabs the wheel and jerks it back, slams the brake on, and we're all just sitting there, and the car kind of came to a, a, a stop, and we're like, exhale. It's okay. And we looked up, and then, of course, the instructor just let him have it. We're like, yeah, please let him have him. Get him out of the wheel, behind the wheel, and let somebody else drive. Every time we did, it was so frustrating, because this kid would not listen. Why? Because he he was so arrogant and, and so cocky and thought he knew so much that he was constantly making bad decisions when he was driving. I don't even know if the kid ever got a license. I hope he didn't, or I hope he learned something. Sometimes you and I are that kid. We won't listen. We already know it all. We already experienced it all. We don't need somebody else to come along and tell us how to do it. We don't want to try anything new. Why? Because we know it won't work. Why? Because we're smarter. And then we miss out. The wisdom that God has for us says, no, you can always learn more. You can always be taught. You need to submit to the process. Two more things that James mentions about this kind of wisdom. It's motivated also by, going on in verse 17, a merciful action. Because James says that the wisdom that comes from heaven is full of mercy and good fruit. It's merciful. You ever want to know if God is speaking to you? It's when you know that you're supposed to show mercy when you want to act with judgment towards people. You know God's speaking to you. God doesn't come along and says, yes, pass judgment on them. They deserve judgment. Give it to them. That's not wisdom that comes from heaven. That's wisdom that comes from our own human nature and it comes from the enemy. But our default has to change because God's default towards us is what? Mercy. It's mercy. Which means I'm not going to pass judgment on this person without giving covering to them to give them the benefit of the doubt, or to absorb the wrong that they've done. I'm going to show them mercy. 
But in our culture, mercy is something that's hard to come by. Our quick split-second reaction is usually judgment. Why? Because we're all about justice and fairness as long as it falls on our side. That's the way we function. That's why we're so quick to react to people on the road when somebody cuts us off. What? It's always their fault, isn't it? Right? It's all the other idiots on the road. It's not our problem. Anybody see the news a week and a half ago about the motorcycle cycle and, his, and his girlfriend were riding in a back road in Texas on a two-lane road, and he was making illegal passes, and so he was passing cars when there was a double yellow and he wasn't supposed to. And when he went to pass one car, a guy saw him coming, and you could tell the guy in the car said, well, he's not going to get away with this. So he swerves in the lane, and he takes him out at like 50 or 60 miles an hour. The guy and his girlfriend go flying. There's a guy behind them on a motorcycle with a camera, and he filmed the whole thing. And he drives up to get to where the guy is who had just done this. And the guy gets out of the car, and he's like, why did you do that? And he fessed up to it because the guy was making an illegal lane change, and I didn't want him to. Think, wow, I would never do that. What was, what was the wisdom just before that happened in his ear? This is not fair. Make sure that this guy doesn't get around you. Cut him off. Instead of, yeah, you know, I know he's breaking the law. I should have mercy for him and not try to somehow be justice in this moment for him. Now, obviously, the guy's going to get prosecuted. He could get attempted murder. I mean, it's serious. Why? Because in that moment, he listened to the voice he shouldn't have listened to. He listened to his own human instinct. Now, none of us would ever do that, hopefully, but there are moments in our life where we make those kind of decisions where our default is not mercy. And so the wisdom that we're listening to is not coming from God. It's coming from some kind of skewed justice that somehow we can even the score, we can make it right. When God is the ultimate one that takes care of the justice issue, we don't have to do that. That's why Jesus talked about in Matthew not to pass judgment on other people. Why? Because he'll take care of that. But our default should be mercy. And then the final thing that James mentions about wisdom and what's motivated by the right wisdom is it's motivated by a clear conviction. James uses the word impartial, that the wisdom that comes from heaven is impartial, which has the connotation of it not being biased. It's more, it's able to, to, to not be siding on one side or the other. But also impartial has the connotation of being decisive and clear so that it's not swayed either direction, but it's clearly This is what I'm supposed to do, so I make the decision. I don't waffle between two points of wisdom or decision. I make the decision and I move forward. That's the kind of wisdom that God brings to you and I, is that there are times when scenarios unfold in front of us where we are stuck in the middle because we look at both sides and we listen to both points of wisdom, and we know either way is going to be costly. So instead of doing something, what do we end up doing? Nothing. Out of indecision, we do nothing. Jesus has a term for that. It's called being lukewarm. It's like, I'm just going to play the middle ground here right now because if I go this way, that's going to really be difficult. But if I go this way, it's also going to be painful and difficult. So I'm just going to kind of just kind of hang out here right now and not go either direction. When we do that, that's when we make the worst decisions. Because Jesus is saying it's better to be what? Hot or cold than to be lukewarm and stuck right in the middle. Indecision costs us. Any football fans? Anybody see Washington or Michigan, Michigan State a week ago? Not yesterday. A week ago, big rivalry game. 104,000 people in the stadium they call the Big House in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Huge rivalry game. Michigan State, Michigan, and Michigan was winning the game. Ten seconds left. This is like for sure they're going to win the game. All they have to do is successfully execute this thing called a punt, which most people can do in their sleep. And the kicker 
goes to receive the ball. And this is interesting because in sports, there's things that you have to think through before they happen to, so you'll make sure you make the right de- decision. Because when you go off your instinct, a lot of times you become indecisive in a moment, and that costs you. That's why when Jordan was playing baseball, we used to practice scenarios all the time. Like when runners were on these bases and there were so many outs, if you get the ball, where do you throw the ball? That's really important for like a 10-year-old, right? So they don't have to necessarily think they know the right decision before they have to make it. So they're not indecisive. Same thing is true in this. So Michigan uh, hikes the ball. It's kind of a low snap. The punter bobbles it. Now this is all he has to do. He just has to fall on the ball. That's all he has to do. I mean, literally, just fall on the ball. And there might be a few seconds left on the clock, but then it means that Michigan State is still like 40 or 50 yards away from scoring anything. So he bobbles it, he kicks it about three or four yards in front of him, and then he runs up to the ball, and instead of just falling on it, he tries to kick it again. And as he does it, he gets spun around, the ball flies in the air, right into the hands of one of the Michigan State players who runs 45 yards down the field with no time left and scores the winning touchdown. 104,000 people in that stadium were silent, (laughs) stunned. The poor punter for Michigan has gotten death threats. It's tragic. All he had to do is, okay, if I bobble this, I'm going to fall on the ball. That's all I have to do. But he was indecisive, and it cost him. Now, you may not be a punter in front of 104,000 people, but you're making decisions every single day that you're in the middle of this moment, and you're going back and forth, and it's better to go one way or the other than to come somehow hang out in the middle. And I think if we were able to do that, God would help us to make the right decision by informing us with his wisdom. Final thing is this, in verses 13 and 18, what does this produce? What is the right wisdom that we allow to influence our lives? What does it produce? Verse 13, James says, humility that comes from wisdom. So we know wisdom produces humility. And then he says in verse 18, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So what does this kind of wisdom produce? It produces humility and righteousness. That's the wisdom that God gives us, and that's what it produces in our life. I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody who would say, ah, yeah, I don't want humility. I don't want righteousness. I'll take arrogance and unrighteousness anytime. We don't react that way. Those are things that we would strive to have in our life. It's the wisdom that comes from God that begins to produce that in us. Now, I want you to to put some flesh and bones on this. I want you to think right now in your own life. It may be one person. It may be a list of people that you could think through in your own life. But think of the person or the people in your life that when you look at them, you would say to yourself, this person has wisdom. You've watched the way they make decisions. You watch the way they process things. You look at the outcome of their life. And you begin to realize, this person seems to know what they're doing. This person seems to have wisdom. I want you to think of that person. Because chances are, doesn't always true, but chances are they know Jesus. And chances are they followed exactly what James has talked about in their life. Maybe because their life has been transformed, their soul has been transformed, their heart is made brand new. It may be even instinctive in them that they live that way because they're constantly listening to God's whisper in their heart and their mind about the wisdom that produces humility and righteousness in their life and not the one that brings disorder and every evil practice into their life. I think it's important for us to see so many times we can walk away from what the scriptures say to us and we can't see what it looks like because we're not experiencing our life. That's why God gives us people in our life that are a little bit further down the line than us. 
I can tell you in my life, I can think of a couple people, but one for sure is my dad. I look at his life and I think, man, if I can emulate his faith, there's something genuine and real about who he is and his wisdom in his life, that if I can understand what he's doing, then I can learn to have the same kind of wisdom and the same kind of experience in my life. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the inspiration of the scriptures that helps us to know that there is the ability to listen to the correct whisper, the right wisdom in our life. Thank you for James' challenge in us to help us go back to what it really looks like to follow you, what it looks like to have a faith that's genuine, that's uncivilized, that's what you called us to be. And Lord, that means that we have wisdom that goes beyond the world that we live in, wisdom that goes beyond our own ability to be smart enough, but wisdom that truly does come from heaven. And I ask this week that we would begin to listen to the wisdom that will ultimately produce that humility and righteousness in us. Lord, I know that you don't come with a blaring, lit billboard that tells us this is what you're supposed to do, but you do come with a still, small voice that precedes every decision that we make. And I pray, Lord, that we would listen intently to your voice, that we would hear by the conviction of your Holy Spirit by the moving of our conscience that we know inside of us the wisdom that you're bringing to bear on a situation and then we would have the courage to obey and to choose what is right in our lives. We thank you, Jesus, for your work in us in your name. Amen.